0: Because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein.
1: Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. This week, we're doing another Best of Power Hour. It's Thanksgiving week. I'm going to take a little bit of time off, but I wanted to just say a little bit to introduce this week's Best of Power Hour. It's another one of my favorite episodes of the year. This one is Dr. Patrick Moore, the co-founder of Greenpeace, And what he's doing, as I described it in the original title, is eviscerating climate catastrophism. This is one of my favorite interviews I've ever done. I think it really showcases uh, Dr. Moore's way of thinking, which is a very broad ecology-based, but also human-centered way of thinking, which I really admire and think is, is very rare. So I'm very happy to feature it again on Power Hour. And one reason I'm featuring it is that Dr. Moore has a new book coming out next year. It's called Fake Invisible Catastrophes and Threats of Doom. And not only does he have a book coming out, but he's currently doing a GoFundMe for the promotion around the book. I'm a big believer in helping other people's promotion. I have an accelerator program where people help promotion of my work and that just helps a ton and i was very excited to see that patrick is coming out with this new book and so i myself will be contributing to his gofundme and i thought that some of you might want to do so as well so if you want to do so just go to gofundme.com and search for patrick moore or if you google gofundme patrick moore it's pretty easy to find it's called fake invisible catastrophes and threats of doom and you'll see the description but the basic idea is this is a book with a lot of important facts a lot of important messages that most people won't hear about uh, if they don't hear about it from this kind of thing. So it's it's in all of our interests, those of us who love energy and love freedom and love human flourishing and who love human progress for this kind of book to get wide circulation. So hope you consider supporting the project. And whether you do or not, make sure to get a copy of the book when it comes out. All right, enjoy this week's Best of Power Hour. Next week, I'll be back live once again. Until then, have a happy Thanksgiving and enjoy. Hi, everyone. This is Alex Epstein, host of Power Hour, and I have good news and bad news for you. The good news is you're about to hear or see an excellent episode of Power Hour because we have a great guest, Dr. Patrick Moore, co-founder of Greenpeace, and he makes tons of interesting points. The bad news is that my audio in particular is really compromised I won't go into the comedy of errors that led to this. Uh, I will do everything I can to avoid it in the future. But it somewhat sounds like I'm talking underwater. So I think you can make out all the words that I'm going to say. And I don't talk nearly as much as Patrick does, uh, fortunately, for many reasons, including he has tons of interesting points to make. But nevertheless, it is annoying, and I apologize for that. Also, there are a couple of moments, maybe three or four or five, I guess, where he cuts out for a few seconds, but uh, everything he says I think is still very intelligible and, and I also think very valuable. So sorry about my audio failings. I will correct that for the future. And that said, enjoy the show. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. All right, we've had a lot of good guests lately, and today uh, might be the one I'm most excited about. He's one of the all-time favorite guests on the show. It's Patrick Moore, the co-founder of Greenpeace. And before I bring him on, I just wanna let you know what specifically I wanna cover with him. You know, right now, our culture is totally dominated by what I would call the climate catastrophe movement. And Patrick Moore has a unique perspective on this, not only because I think he's very familiar with the science, very familiar with the economics, but he has lived through this movement. As a co-founder of Greenpeace, he has an insider's perspective, and I'm really interested to hear from him how this movement has evolved, or maybe I should say uh, devolved, and what we can learn about that in terms of understanding it, and I, and from my perspective, combating it today. So uh, that said, let's welcome on. Uh, Patrick Moore, welcome back to Power Hour.
0: Really great to be back with you, Alex. Thanks.
1: All right, so um, let's just uh, jump right in now. I would definitely recommend people get your book, uh, Confessions of a Greenpeace Dropout, so they can get um, the full story. So, but I've already mentioned you're a co-founder of Greenpeace, but what was your introduction to the climate catastrophe movement? How did did you experience it?
0: Well, actually I left Greenpeace over 30 years ago after being in, in it from the beginning for 15 years in the top committee as we evolved from a church basement to a pretty powerful international organization. I was one of the international directors for the last six years I was there. But the climate issue had not yet really surfaced to a large extent in 1986 when I left. It wasn't really until 1989, just three years later, that that issue kind of came to the forefront. So the reason I left Greenpeace had nothing to do with the climate. Subject. It had to do with what I felt we had started with a very strong humanitarian or orientation against all out nuclear war, and we expressed that by campaigning against nuclear testing first by the US H bomb tests in Alaska, and second, the atmospheric hydrogen and atomic bomb tests by the French in the South Pacific. So That's, that's how we got started and of course we were trying to save human civilization from nuclear war as well as saving the environment from nuclear war. Uh, But as we moved along with, the next was save the whales and then the baby seals and then the toxic waste. And somehow or other, the, 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 the peace in Greenpeace got lost and all it was left was the green. And environmentalists began to characterize humans as enemies of nature, enemies of the earth. As if we were the only bad species on the whole planet. That was way too much like original sin for me. I'm totally not into that. And uh, I I, I just believe that humans are part of nature. So they were uh, basically making it appear as though we were separate from nature. We were different. We weren't nature. We were the bad people who were killing nature. And I don't, I cannot see it that way because if ecology teaches you one thing, it's that we're all part of the same ecosystem. We all came through the evolutionary process to the stage we are at now. And it seems to me that at least in the last 50 years, since the environmental movement really got going, a lot of improvements had been made, especially in the wealthier countries, Pollution control technology afford just the technologies that are better for the environment, but it, it just went crazy at that point, because I felt I lost control over the science element in, in Greenpeace, which I had, they, they used to call me Dr. Truth, because I, I would make sure they didn't say things that were lies, or that were misinformation, and suddenly it just became a stream of sensationalism, misinformation, and fear tactics. And uh, the book I'm writing now, I I begin one chapter by saying you're driving down the freeway in your SUV and you're afraid you're killing your grandchildren, and that makes you guilty. So you decide right then to send Greenpeace a big check or one of the other hundreds of so-called charities that are promising to save you from certain doom from the fossil fuel emissions. And they've got it so backwards. Uh, The fact is the fossil fuel emissions, of course, are carbon dioxide and water. And those are the two most essential ingredients for all life. Photosynthesis takes carbon dioxide and water and turns it into sugar, which then becomes the basis of the energy for all life. So, you know, if you look at it from the actual scientific perspective and look at the his- history, most of the climate alarmists and catastrophists, they don't even wanna talk about anything before 1850, because that's when we started using fossil fuels and they're blaming virtually everything that has happened that they say is bad on fossil fuels even though fossil fuel emissions are what's causing the greening of the earth which is at least a 35% increase in the growth of trees and food crops since 1950 this is clearly documented in you know actual yields of produce in the field and timber in the forests we know this uh, from and lots of Lots of research forests and agricultural research stations know this. There's lots of it in the literature, but the greens so-called aren't in favor of greening for some reason.
1: Yeah. So, so let me ask about that. Cause I think that's a, the, I mean, just in terms of anyone with knowledge of basic science knows that CO2 is plant food and yet it's, it's always struck me as really interesting how we hear we're emitting more CO2 and we think, oh, that must be bad, even though we know that it's plant food. And I think a lot of it comes down to your point that the modern environmental movement has a very strong anti-human element. The idea that human beings are unnatural and therefore bad. And therefore, even if we do something that's gonna green the planet, we can leave aside the warming, but at least they should consider the greening good. Uh, but but they don't. I'm curious when you first, so you, you mentioned that when you were, um, you know, you had left Greenpeace before climate became the leading issue, but surely you were tracking them and you were tracking this issue. When this first arose as an issue, how did you think about it in terms of rising CO2 levels and concerns about uh, warming and then non, non-interest at all in greening?
0: Well, actually, my first involvement was In British Columbia where I am now and where I was born, the forest industry is the biggest industry and the government did a study here in 89 while lots of other countries and provinces were doing the same thing about human co2 emissions and they blamed the forest industry for being the biggest culprit. Now almost all of the forest industry co2 emissions are from burning wood and using wood and that's an organic cycle. I mean the trees grow back again with fossil fuels, the fossil fuels don't grow back again. So fossil fuels are a new input into the global carbon cycle. All that carbon was in the cycle before it got turned into fossil fuels by plants and and plankton. But we're putting it back, so we're adding to the stock or the balance sheet of CO2 in the active cycle between the ocean and the atmosphere and the earth and all all of the life on the earth. And so I, I, and I coined the t- term at that, the first sentence in that paper, which was, are all, atom, all carbon atoms created equal, referring to the difference between biomass carbon and fossil fuel carbon. Because biomass carbon is in the, the rapid cycle on an annual and decadal basis, whereas fossil fuels, it's millions of years. So you can't really count it as being renewable in that sense. And my first sentence was, carbon is the currency of life. In order to give people a metaphor that has to do with money, uh, it's, it's, it's the money of life, it's the basis of life. And so, this idea of zero net carbon and stopping carbon and carbon with something bad is like moronical. It is stupid because we are made of carbon and all the life is made of carbon. And then they say, well, if the earth, if, if there's more CO2, yes, it causes greening, but all the food will be less nutritious because there isn't enough nutrients for them or they can make up these things. Well, if that was true, why is it that food from greenhouses is very nutritious and they double and triple the CO2 levels in their greenhouses to get these high yields? So it's, it's just a total lie, but it's all over the place. you find hundreds of articles claiming that CO2 will make our food into junk food. That's the way they say it. And it's, it's just a lie. And that's what's going on these days. Uh, the lie that, that wind and solar energy are cheaper than oil and gas, which they're, they're just saying it over and over and over again. And it's clearly not true. The idea that fossil fuels are heavily subsidized, whereas wind and solar are not as heavily subsidized as fossil fuels, it's the exact opposite. Fossil fuels are heavily taxed, wind and solar are heavily subsidized, they're opposites. So let me, another funny funny way of putting a CO2 into perspective is, I, I originally I, when I hadn't studied this much, I laughed at people who said that plants, their plants, their house plants like it when they talk to them, and I'm going, oh yeah, right, like that's pretty kooky, you know, I mean your plants haven't got ears. Uh, It's just that you're breathing 40,000 ppm of CO2 on them and you're talking to them. And that is like the most concentrated plant food fertilizer that there could be for those plants. So it's very likely that people have noticed that if they have a lot of spare time and talk to their plants during it, that their plants will grow better.
1: Maybe that's the basis. I don't know. I heard a long time ago, I never looked into this, but studies about, oh, you know, if you pray for the plants, they'll grow more. And maybe no. that's it. Maybe they were speaking to the plants. Maybe they were praying near the plants.
0: Even if you'll pray up real close to them and then everything will do better. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, kneel, at their, kneel at their base. <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, so, yeah, it's a, it just, I mean, what's, what I've always liked about you is that you're in you're ecology, but you're looking at it, I mean, from a pro-human and certainly not the anti-human perspective that, that so predominates people uh, looking at this. I mean, when you started to see this obsession with CO2 and carbon, what did you think in terms of the trajectory? Did you think this would be something that would really blow up or did you think it was a passing fad?
0: I had no idea that it would become a cult religion, which is what it obviously is. If you look at Greta Thunberg and Extinction uh, Rebellion and this, these sorts of things, um, it it's absolutely has nothing to do with science and the politics of it are expressed through ideology rather than through science. Uh, it's, it's just very clear to me that this, this is one of the most damaging things that has happened in the history of science. It's, it's like when they told Galileo they were gonna kill him because he said the earth is not the center of the universe. And you know he, they would have killed him if he hadn't recanted, and now they're asking people to apologize for saying things like that CO2 is a good thing, that you should be cancelled if you say that. And I'm in, you know, as chair of the CO2 coalition in, in Arlington, outside Washington DC, with 55 of the top climate scientists and economists, engineers, who know the whole thing from energy technology through to the carbon dioxide issue, uh, We are being censored by Facebook, uh, and and actual companies that are working in free enterprise uh, and and business are saying we should be censored. You know, businesses are saying we should be censored. These aren't like, these aren't like cult religions, but they're behaving like them at this time. So, I, I think we're in a very dangerous time for freedom of thought and freedom of speech. And I don't know where it's gonna go. I have sometimes surmised that the very existence of all this social media and electronic communication we have may short circuit the collective brain of the human species in some way, so that we just go crazy and everybody starts lying about everything and nobody can get the truth out. I don't know, but uh, something funny is going on because we're supposed to be advancing in our knowledge, not going backwards. And at this point, I see a lot of backwards motion in, in this subject
1: now, in terms of you know knowledge going down, obviously the mainstream perception is, oh well, we're learning more and more, and every day we learn more about how rising co2 levels are causing dramatic warming and disastrous associated climate changes. To go back to your your initial research on this. Um, like, how did you think about, when, when you first started reading about this, like, how did you go about learning about this? And then what did you conclude? In ter- particularly in terms of the warming aspect of rising CO2 levels.
0: Well, what I started with was the knowledge that correlation does not equal causation. So when you see a correlation, like the fact that we happen to be in a 300-year warming period since the peak of the Little Ice Age, and CO2 is going up due to our emissions, You can't just say, well, it must be the CO2 then. You know, it's just that doesn't work in science. So there there actually is no clear proof that CO2 has caused any of the warming. Theoretically, because it's a greenhouse gas, it would have some effect. But it's so minor compared to water. The water vapor, the clouds, the ice, the oceans covering 72% of the Earth's surface. This is a water world. And CO2 is at 0.04% in the atmosphere when water is between 1 and 4%, like 25 to 100 times more abundant. And so it would, it would not be unusual for the, whatever effect CO2 has by itself, all else being equal, for all else not to be equal and to cancel it out or even to offset it the other way. If you look at the historical record going back half a billion years, there is absolutely no indication that CO2 is the cause of the changes in temperature as CO2 has continually gone down during that period, whereas temperature has just gone up and down and it has no trend. CO2 has a downward trend. And the great irony of today, today's situation is that it, is this, even in this interglacial period, we have huge sheets of ice on the poles This is the coldest it's been, this Pleistocene Ice Age, which started 2.6 million years ago. This is the coldest it's been in 250 million years. If you look at the marine sediment analysis, you will see that the last ice age, the Karoo, ended 250 million years ago after 100 million years. That's how long that ice age was, and it was about as cold as this one. In addition... At the height of the last major glaciation, which was only 20,000 years ago, in the Pleistocene Ice Age, where there have been about 45 major glaciations on on intervals lately in the last million years of 100,000 years, CO2 reached the lowest it's been in the history of life at 180 parts per million. 150 million years ago, it was between 2000 and 2500, And 500 million years ago, it was somewhere between 4,000 and 6,000 parts per million. That's when modern life emerged in the Cambrian Explosion, about 540 to 570 million years ago, when multicellular life emerged. So it's important to note a couple of things. First, all the species living on the earth today are descended from species and evolution that occurred during those warm periods. So... We are adapted to warmth. As a matter of fact, the only reason human beings could come out of the deep tropics in Africa, where we evolved, was housing, clothing, and fire. Those three things made it possible for humans to live where I'm living today on Vancouver Island. Otherwise, we would die here if we didn't have those things. We wouldn't ever last two days here. Whereas in the tropics where there is no freezing weather or even really cold weather, in the deep tropics, like even in Mexico, uh, which we think is a subtropical, uh, humans could never survive there without fire, shelter, and clothing. We, we are basically a tropical species. That's where we came from. And we, we haven't turned into an Arctic species, we, you know. <laughs> That's polar bears, they've turned into an Arctic species. And the reason they did is is because they took advantage of a habitat that that suddenly appeared that wasn't there before. Because we're actually at the tail end of a 50 million year cooling period from the Eocene Thermal Maximum. Look it up, anybody can look up an image of the graph of the temperature of the Earth from 50 million years ago to today. Actually, it starts at 65 million on this particular graph by Hansen et al. And it shows you the cooling, shows you when the Antarctic ice started to form, when the, when, when the uh, started to form much later. The Antarctic is, is way colder than the Arctic because there's a cold ocean flowing around the whole Southern Hemisphere. Whereas the Northern Hemisphere has a lot of land, which warms up easier in the sunshine than, uh, than, than ocean does. So that's why they're, they're quite different. And the idea that Antarctica is gonna melt anytime soon It started freezing 33 million years ago when the temperature was way higher than it is now on average on the Earth, and the Arctic started freezing over three to five million years ago. But even three million years ago, there were forests on Canada's Arctic islands, and before that, those forests were subtropical with giant camels roaming around in them. Today, they are basically barren and a frozen block of ice. And that's because the earth cooled down. So we're in the coldest period in 250 years and the lowest CO2 in the history of life. And people are saying it's too, co- too hot and there's too much CO2, which is rather ironic.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I love, I think you said 250 years by accident at the end, 250 million years, right? The coldest yeah. period in 250 million years. Yeah, it's, I, I love this point about we're a tropical species because the narrative you hear is we are uniquely adapted to the climate, global climate system of the last 10,000 years, and if it goes up one degree or two, then it's all gonna be out of whack, and we're gonna perish. So is, is your view that, okay, let's say it was, it used to be, you know, in Fahrenheit, 20 degrees or more warmer. If it was 20 degrees or more warmer on average,
0: could we still survive as humans? Of course, because when the warming, when the, when the planet warms, it warms inordinately towards the poles. The tropical areas don't change at all, it, it, a little bit, but n- not really much at all. Where it warms is at the North Pole and the South Pole the most, and in between. So basically, the, 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 the Earth becomes more, uh, more similar in temperature everywhere than it is now, where it's really cold at the, trop- at the poles and really warm at the tropics. So that's what you need to know. That's why when they say Canada is warming twice as fast as the world. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and, that, and all of the northern countries are warming twice as fast as the world because the tropics aren't warming. And here we have Canada, uh, you know, the coldest country in the world, colder than Russia on average, at minus 5.3 Celsius average temperature. And we are really worried about climate change here. The people in India, And China, in the south of China and Brazil and Nigeria, they're not worried about climate change. They're not having these big political fights over it. And they're the warmest places on earth. And the only climate refugees are people leaving the winter in the northern regions to go to the tropics. Those are the climate refugees. They're saying it's going to be the other way around, that all the people in the warm places are going to come to Canada. No, they will not. And, And when they get here, they'll wish they hadn't.
1: I mean, I, I'm trying to put myself in the position of somebody who's who's never heard of my work and never heard of your work and seeing this. And when you say it, it's, it's so straightforward. And you seem very confident in it. Like, maybe this would help people. Like, how is it that we're led to believe that almost that essentially every knowledgeable scientist believes that we're disrupting the delicate balance of a perfect climate and headed toward Armageddon. How is it that that were led to, I mean, that many, some scientists at least believe this and that were led to believe that virtually all scientists believe this to the point where corporations who are not usually the most courageous actors all feel very, I mean, Amazon, for God's sake, just named climate pledge arena. You know, they just named their arena climate. I mean, they all feel compelled to say something about We are, you know, we're fighting climate change, existential threat. How is it that that everyone is led to believe that this is just an obvious scientific conclusion that we're destroying the climate?
0: Uh, Well, the fact is cancel culture and censorship in the climate area began long ago. I haven't been able to really get much of a platform other than Twitter, uh, but I'm not in the news all the time on this like these people are. And they're, ma- they're, they're getting sensational coverage of the end of the Earth. But, you know, when AOC comes out, Al- Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez comes out and says there's only 14 years until the planet is ended. It's, I mean, I don't know what the end of Earth looks like, but it, does it blow up or what, you know, or catch on fire? It catches on fire. Yeah, the oceans too, no doubt. <laughs> the seas will burn. But... Uh it's, it's all a lot of kind of sensationalist, biblical-style doomsday talk. You know, that's what it is. And doomsday works. I don't know. I think it's a projection of people's individual fear of death. The reason it doesn't work on me is because I'm not afraid of death. And, I, and there's lots of people who aren't because they realize you're going to die anyways. That would be a stupid thing to be afraid of. You know, I mean, I, I'm careful, I try not to die every day, but when I do, I won't be particularly upset about it, because that's just what happens. And so that, that's what I think is going on here. It has to be. Otherwise, why would people uh, react so emotionally to this BS prophecy that the world is coming to an end? It never has yet. And they've been saying it for centuries, millennia. There's been people standing on street corners with a sign saying the end is near. And they, you know, it's in the Bible. It's all over the place. The apocalypse, the end times are coming. And it's, it's just garbage is what it is. It's a, it's a weak mind at work, not, so wha- not why being we- willing to actually f- get into what's really going on. And what's really going on is we are being taken down a garden path that's going to lead to the complete destruction of human civilization and maybe that's what they're after. Because if they don't realize that tractors need fuel to grow our food and that trucks need fuel to get the food into the cities, the first thing that would happen if fossil fuels were banned, which isn't going to happen, but they keep saying that it, that it should and it, it, it causes a lot of damage to the overall economy what they are doing because they're diverting wealth into wealth destroying technologies like wind and solar. Wind and solar are a parasite on the overall larger economy. You, they couldn't build their own infrastructure with their energy. Wind, windmills could not create windmills. Solar farms could not create solar farms. They depend on fossil fuels from the mining, the manufacturing and the construction of these things. And then they say, "Oh, isn't it wonderful when they don't work for three days at a time, or more?"
1: Oh man, so much, so much to talk about. Okay. Um, a couple more things I want to make sure to cover. Why is it that more scientists don't speak up? Because I think people, you know, scientists are all being cast as we are supporting this uh, attack on fossil fuels. So you mentioned that CO two Coalition has fifty some, you know, it's a combination of scientists and economists and engineers. But why aren't there thousands of scientists who are just rebelling against this saying, look, this is a, you know, this is a cult. This is, this is, the world is not gonna, the planet's not gonna get destroyed, but human civilization will be destroyed if we enact these policies. Why aren't we seeing more of that?
0: We are saying that to each other, but we don't have any channel to get this out in the media. There's a few places, but basically the mainstream media doesn't cover the skeptical position and i mean the word skeptical has become a dirty word through this whole politic the fact is the duty of every scientist is to be skeptical and they say the science is settled and then they apparently need vast amounts of more money to study it you know continuously forever it must be studied even though we already know the answer so You know, it used to be that most science research was done by private enterprise like General Motors and 3M and people who expected if they invested in some science, they might get something useful for it. Well, actually there is something useful coming from climate science and that is fear. The fear that's coming from climate science is being used by Greens to raise money, by the media to to sensationalize and make ad revenue, by the crony capitalists to get your money to do their project which is useless in the final analysis. They, they will rust in place is what I say about the wind and solar farms. And then of course there it, it is the scientists who are getting all this money. So and see CO2 is invisible. No one can see what it's doing. You can't just look over there across the bay and say look what the CO2 is doing to the climate. And when you have something invisible the average person can't see it, so they can't observe what it is doing. They have to depend upon the greens, the politicians, the media, and the scientists, all who have a huge amount of skin in the game, to the CO2. Right? This is called fake invisible catastrophes, of which there are numerous ones. Including the polar bears, which are dying from CO2, the coral reefs, which are dying from CO2, and they are both so remote that nobody can even observe them, never mind the CO2 that's killing them, supposedly. And it's all a lie, a complete and utter lie. But you can get away with a, making up a story about something that's invisible. Take, for example, just on another subject GMOs, genetically modified foods. What is it in the GMO that is bad? Can you show it to me under a microscope? No because it's invisible, whatever it is. It doesn't even have a name. It's just GMO, right, is bad. That, that's, that's ridiculous. We don't make this, you shouldn't make decisions based on some, somebody telling you something invisible is bad when you can't even know what it is. Radiation is invisible. Look at all the fear there is of that. I mean, if, I don't think it's a good idea necessarily because I don't think we should have all our eggs in one basket but we could pretty well eliminate fossil fuels with nuclear energy and hydroelectric energy combined. Because all electricity could be made with nuclear energy as are the 440 nuclear plants in the world are doing now and producing somewhere around 15% of all of it. And the hydroelectric is in the 6 to 10% range, but it doesn't have the same potential for scaling up. Nuclear can be scaled up all we want. So all large ships could be powered by nuclear reactors. The whole Russian ice baker fleet is nuclear. There's the six nuclear navies, including submarines that go underwater for three months with nuclear reactors. If you can do that, you can have every freighter and every oil tanker running with a nuclear reactor. All buildings, which is about 35% of all our energy for heating and cooling, could be heated and cooled with electricity from nuclear plants. No more fossil fuels there. Every vehicle, Especially heavy equipment, could run on hydrogen made by electrolysis of water with nuclear energy. That's starting to get expensive but it can be done and there's actually a a truck company making hydrogen powered trucks right now and they're they're scaling up. So there you get transportation. All trains can be electrified. There's no problem there because you can electrify the tracks. You don't have to put fuel on the trains but you do need fuel in, in, in mobile machinery although lots of the machinery that works in big mines can be electrified, like those big shovels. They have, many of them have electric cables to them. That could be made with nuclear energy or hydro energy. So you can, I haven't done detailed math on this, but you could get rid of at least 85% of fossil fuel use for energy. Then there's the plastic issue. That's a material. So, you know, that these people are saying that the plastic is poisoning the ocean. We wrap our food in it to preserve the food. That's why we use plastic wrap on meat. That's why we use plastic containers for just about everything under the sun, Satsuki and you name it, you know. Yeah, glass is okay, but it's breakable and heavier, so it takes more energy to move it from one place to another. So you save energy when you use plastic and aluminum tins instead of glass bottles. So. Here we go with this now, of this war on plastic, which is basically a proxy war on fossil fuels, because virtually all the plastics are made from oil or natural gas. PVC, for example, the most versatile of all the plastics, is made from natural gas and table salt. What is wrong with that?
1: Um, let me, so, I mean, I think the common denominator among all of these catastrophes, the, the invisible element, I think, is really fascinating, and I know you have a, a talk on that, but it's also that they're all things that are man-made, so if you, if the plastic is man-made, it must be bad, if nuclear, if the radiation is man-made, it must be bad, if the CO2 is man-made, it must be bad, and I want to make sure to just quickly cover, I know you have to go. Well, through. just check.
0: Yeah. if the windmills and solar panels are man-made, they must be bad, too.
1: Yeah, but that's, that's the, that's the deception of it. I have a line that, you know, the only form of energy the modern environmental movement supports is imaginary energy. So when it when it's in when the energy actually interestingly, the energy is invisible and, and people don't know the mechanism. So they just have this vague idea of we're getting it straight from the sun or the wind, then oh yeah, we support that. We love it. But in practice, it's oh my gosh, look at how much space this takes up, look at all the birds this is killing, look at all the resources this uses. I mean, they actually understand that energy is a process and that process has a significant impact on nature and the more dilute the energy process and the more intermittent the process, the bigger impact it's going to have on the rest of nature. But it's it's the ideal of non-impact and being natural that sells it. Not that they're sincere uh, about that. Let me just ask about two things because I, I particularly want to get your take on them, including because I'm working on my next version of my book and I wanna make sure I incorporate anything I can learn from you. What about this claim that we're entering a sixth extinction? This seems at odds with the idea that CO2 is beneficial to life, but what's your take on that?
0: Well, I don't know how they get around to thinking CO2 is gonna be the cause of extinction, but I guess it's due to the drastic warming that's supposed to happen someday, which hasn't happened. Uh, This is just a totally fake story. The, the, the people in the United Nations who are pushing this, they say we know there's 1.6 million species, but there's probably at least 8 million species. That's how they start the discussion. <laughs> so now a million species could go extinct tonight, and we wouldn't know they'd even been here, right? That's how that's how they're getting these half the species might go extinct, by getting it up to 8 million, when we don't have any Latin names or photographs or descriptions of these other uh, 6.4 million species that they claim are out there somewhere. So that's, that's just the starting point of this ludicrous proposition. Biodiversity is higher now in this era of, of, the, of the Holocene than it has been in the history of life. If you look at the February 1999 edition of National Geographic, it's around when they went tabloid, The the article is called the sixth great extinction. The whole issue is called the sixth great extinction. But in it, they show a graph from the beginning of the Cambrian explosion when life, multicellular life emerged, so going back about 600 million years. They show a graph that shows the number of families of life, like there's family genus species. So families are big, like the ape family of which we are proud members, dog family, the bear family, you know, all those families cat family and they show a graph of the number of families and up and up and up it goes at the beginning and then there's an extinction event it goes down. Then up and up and up higher than it was before, another extinction. Up and up and up the Permian extinction, the big mother of an extinction 250 million years ago which took out like 95 or more percent of all species. It went up after that to even higher at the dinosaur extinction 75 million years ago, 65 million years ago, and after the dinosaur extinction it continued to go up to where it is today. That's in National Geographic, that's the, the number of families of life, it's the biodiversity of life. So life has this magical property of just branching out and finding ever more finer niches to, to take advantage of, and how, how long that will continue Nobody knows, but there's no chance that there's going to be a sixth mass extinction unless an asteroid hits. And that's possibly what caused most of the ones in the past. We know it's what caused the most most recent one when the dinosaurs went extinct. It blew a hole right through the crust of the Earth. that was 60 to 100 kilometers in diameter, that asteroid. And it hit at Yucatan, south of Florida. And it just blew a massive amount of magma up into the stratosphere where it takes a long time to come out because there's no rain up there to wash it out like there is in, in the troposphere below. So the earth was blacked out for years and almost all the photosynthetic species died and that's the food chain for the whole planet. So that it was starvation primarily. In, in the sea as well with no plankton and all the marine dinosaurs went extinct too, not just the terrestrial ones, the plesiosaurs and the ichthyosaurs and the whales fill that niche in the next five million years after the dinosaur extinction, the whales and dolphins. Well,
1: I love hearing you talk about this. Okay, one more. Ocean acidification. I know you have a lot to say about this, but the narrative is, you know, we're poisoning the oceans by making them acid. The the CO2 we're adding to the atmosphere is absorbed by the oceans and that's killing, you know, all the beautiful reefs in the world and with it the fish and then we're going to starve because we can't eat fish.
0: Well unlike CO2 and warming where there is some scientific basis for thinking CO2 might contribute something to the warming, not much, uh, with ocean acidification it is a complete and utter fabrication. It is impossible to make the oceans acidic. The buffering capacity of the 33 parts per thousand salt which are in the sea make it alkaline. It is quite alkaline. It's as alkaline as many of the foods we eat, which we would call call them basic, and like baking soda, for example. And so the oceans cannot be made acidic. They say it's getting more acidic when they mean it's getting less basic. And even that is a very small number. The most productive seas in the world are the least alkaline seas. Off Peru, the Humboldt Current, with high CO2 content coming up from upwelling from below, both because when the cold water sinks at Antarctica it takes down a lot of CO2 and then all the detritus raining down, the organic matter raining down from the dead species at the top come down and decompose and that creates CO2 from the bacterial decomposition. So this water comes up rich in CO2 at pH about 7.8 to 7.9 which is fully into the alkaline, not acidic. And they say that if the if they keep putting CO2 into the atmosphere, the the calcifying marine organisms, the organisms with shells that protect themselves, their soft bodies, they make it out of calcium and carbon dioxide. That's limestone. And so all those shells they say are going to melt. And that the species won't be able to produce those shells anymore. Those shells aren't produced in the ocean. They're produced inside the animal. where they're able to control the total internal chemistry of themselves. They're not affected by the, I mean, if you have pH down so low that it's like going to just burn everything or up so high that it's just going to burn everything, but that's not going to happen in the ocean. It simply can't happen in the ocean. And the, the, the other point being is that there are many species of freshwater clams and mussels which calcify in acidic water like down to pH five, where seven is neutral. So these species are doing fine in acidic waters. Not that the oceans are ever going to become acidic, but think of species that live at the mouth of a river in the sea, a huge estuary, for example, like the Columbia River estuary where the, the salinity, the oxygen, the the, acidi- the, the the alkalinity and acidity and everything changes all the time with the currents and storms and, uh, every- and wa- fresh water entering and there's oysters growing everywhere, you know? I mean, it's, it's a complete and absolute lie that we are going to hurt the oceans with CO2. You know, I, I,
1: think, I think you and I met in 2015 i mean, the two occasions I met, I, I remember are we were both on a tour or at least part of a tour of Canada, including the Idea City event where you have this great talk, people look up Idea City Patrick Moore, he has some 500,000 views or something on the video. But we also met uh, when the CO2 coalition was being started. I was part of the or- original meetings. And one thing I really, I, I became particularly fond of you then when I got to know you is just, you're very interested in how the world works, and you don't come into it with a bias of, oh, if we do this, it's got to end everything, or if we do this, it can't be bad. It's really being interested in, hey, what's going to happen? How's it going to affect different species? How it's going to affect us? And almost nobody has that. And so it's, it's, it's great that you have it, but you would wish for a world where scientists, there were tons of scientists who just really were interested in how the world works and didn't have this narrative that anything we impact must be unprecedented, bad, and catastrophic.
0: Yes, the word impact is considered negative when, in fact, there are such things as positive impacts like the greening of the earth, for example. But what, what, I, what I've done is, in ecology to me, from a human point of view, and as it applies to passing knowledge on to policymakers, is about knowing where things come from be, into our civilization, like all the food and materials and energy that goes into cities, to making cities. We need, we, we need to be aware of where that's coming from, to understand what the system is. And we need to be aware of where it's going after we finish using it. We need to see those cycles. And I don't know what, why people, like one of the, okay, one of the, my points is that, is, is, is that mo, mo, uh, technology and mechanization have a huge positive impact in that they have eliminated so much toil and drudgery in making things with machines and and not not having 80% of the population weeding and hoeing out in the fields. Uh, Now it's 2% of the population because of mechanization. But what this has meant is that the vast majority of the people now live in a completely artificial urban environment, even in a town of 5,000 people there's a mall and everybody's got a cell phone and everybody's on the web. That changes the political situation greatly. So now the Greens are in a position to convince the urban people who don't know where anything is coming from or why uh, or how, how, how this happened. I mean it's the city, the infrastructure that we have. They can be t- taught to think the people in the country that are cutting and drilling and plowing and blasting and Doing whatever they're doing there are the evil doers because they are the destroyers of the earth. Look at them; they're cutting the forests, they're plowing the land, and 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 and, and they're blowing up rocks and they're do and digging for oil and minerals. These people are against mining, and you know, they still ride bicycles, you know, and drive cars usually, and but they're against mining, right? I I, I and so they. They are the biggest voting block now by far. And it's amazing, actually, that, that the whole industry hasn't been shut down out in, in, the, in the hinterland where... Because the only reason those people are doing those things, cutting trees and mining metal, is for the people in the city. That's why they're doing it. So they can have buildings and food and energy coming in. They can't do it for themselves in there. We're the, they can't build a city... You can't just take an area the size of a city and make a city out of it with food and energy. It's not going to happen. And uh, Paolo Solari, he was really an interesting guy. He proposed that the cities all be mile by mile cubes. And then the whole rest of the world would be countryside. And there'd be no sprawl. Everything would be inside this giant cube. I don't think I want to live in there.
1: Yeah, I I like living by the water. Um, Me
0: too. (laughs) I am living by the water. It's right out my window here, and so is a glacier on the mountain in in Comox, Vancouver Island, British Columbia. The glacier's name is Quiniche. It's a beautiful thing.
1: Wow. Um, Well, I know we need to wrap up. So let's. So as I've said many times, a big fan of your work. What can uh, listeners do, and what can I do to help uh, promote your message?
0: Well I hope people will buy my book on Amazon, Confessions of a Greenpeace Dropout, The Making of a Sensible Environmentalist. It's the history of the first 15 years of Greenpeace and the environmental movement, and then it's a summary of all the important environmental issues today with just a little bit different take uh, than, you know, the, the one chapter is Chemistry is Us, and because we are made of chemicals. And then I, I have a whole chapter talking about the word chemicals. What are they? Well, they're everything is what they are. So you can't say I don't like that because it's a chemical, right? There's, there's toxic chemicals, it's true, but many of them are made by life, like snake poison, for example. You know. So when you get into looking at how you decide the rules on chemicals, it's a very, very complex subject, toxicology is a very complex subject, and I try to explain it in a pe- way people can understand it. Uh, population. A lot of people think there's too many people. The best thing to solve that is the mechanization of agriculture, because big families are needed on farms for labor, and the kids don't get to go to school past year eight because they need, they're need they needed for labor. And so you get people who aren't very well educated, and there's way, way many of them. Whereas when When agriculture gets mechanized, far fewer people are required to work in agriculture. They go to cities where women then establish a position of emancipation compared to stoop labor on the farm with all their little kids having to do that too. And then they get educated and then they have smaller children because in the country children are an asset, in the city children are a liability, an expense and so that's what stops population growth and all you have to do is look at all the industrialized countries and see that most of them are are negative population without counting immigration and it's still mostly in the poor countries where the families are large
1: yeah so definitely recommend that book anything else uh you'd point people to
0: uh just search me on the internet i got a ton of videos i've got Videos done with PragerU, which are five five-minute videos that sum up many of these issues succinctly. They've had millions of views. Um, my 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 lecture to the Global Warming Policy Foundation, again in in uh, 2015 in London, was the first time I came out with my hypothesis that the reason CO2 is declining steadily is because of the calcifying marine organisms using carbon dioxide to make armor plating for themselves inadvertently sucking vast amounts of carbon dioxide out of the cycle and into the sediments in the form of limestone chalk and marble and those those stones most people don't realize that those rocks are of life origin not like granite which came out of the core of the earth as molten rock and in volcanoes. uh, There's a hundred million billion tons of carbon that came from CO2 in the carbonaceous rocks in the Earth's crust. And that's why we were running out of CO2. And that's why our putting CO2 back into the atmosphere that was there in the first place, because all the the, the car- carbonaceous rocks and all the fossil fuels were made by life. That the fossil fuels are all made with solar energy in forests and, and plankton in the sea. They, they are 100% organic because they're, carbon-based compounds. And the, the this is just a fact that humans are actually the salvation of life because we have prevented the continuing decline of carbon dioxide, which would have ended life eventually in a blink of geological time, in fact, because uh, it was already down to 180. And at 150 parts per million, the plants die. So if, when, if the plants die, life dies, period.
1: That's a point of yours that I... I like, and it really, I think, captures the pro-human and rational nature of your approach versus the anti-human and religious nature of the other approach. Because the other approach basically says, well, if the CO2 was disappearing uh, from the atmosphere, that was Gaia's will, and anything we do must be bad. It can't even leave open the possibility that what we do could not only benefit us, but but benefit just the broader proliferation of life on Earth by supporting its basic ingredient.
0: This will go down as humanity's biggest contribution to the continuation of life on planet Earth. There's no doubt in my mind of it. I put this hypothesis out five years ago. I've spoken about it in forums all around the world since. No one has challenged it. And it, it, it is also in an essay of mine, which anybody can email me at pmur.ecosense.me, and I'll send them links to an article called the positive impact of human emissions of CO2 on the survival of life on earth. It, we did it inadvertently, just like the shellfish didn't know they were presaging the end of life when they started making calcium carbonate for, for armor plating, but they, they inadvertently did presage the end of life. We didn't know when we started using fossil fuels that we were the salvation of life. So it just makes you wonder if Gaia is somewhere in the background there, but I'm not saying that, shelled creatures are evil, you see. I mean, they didn't mean to do that. And we can't really take credit in a, in a certain sense. But the, the fact that we have the knowledge that we have done this, I don't think clams know what they did. But we know what we've done. We have increased the CO2 in the atmosphere to a healthier level for the planet. And that's why the trees are growing faster and the crops are growing faster. And that's why greenhouse growers put CO2 into their greenhouses, because that's what plants want. And plants are the basis of all life. Otherwise, animals couldn't exist, because we don't photosynthesize. We don't have green skin with chlorophyll in it, like they do. And so uh, we could talk for hours. And-
1: yeah, I know, I know you have to go, and I know we went a little over, but... Uh, thanks so much. Now, I, I learned a lot of new stuff this time. I can't imagine how much people who haven't read you as much as I have learned. So I just want to say thanks for coming on the show and, and thanks for being you. I'm, I'm a bigger bigger and bigger fan all the time.
0: I'll come on anytime, Alex. I enjoy talking to you.
1: All right. Talk to you soon. Uh, thanks again to Patrick Moore for coming on the show. I think you can probably tell I really enjoyed that one I mean, maybe one perspective that might be interesting about this is as I've been working on the second version of the moral case for fossil fuels, and I know I've been talking about this for a while, but it is, it is going to happen and it is coming along really well. One you know, one thing I, I expected or I thought was possible when I really re-engaged with these issues and started studying them again and studying the latest, I mean, just studying them in, in a, the level of depth that you need to. Uh, for a book, because I thought, you know, maybe I'll be more sympathetic to the idea that rising CO2 levels are bad. And I've become much less sympathetic to the idea. I think that the primary reason is because I've become so aware of how deeply anti-human our thinking about environmental impact is. And, and particularly, I'll talk about this in the book, but particularly, you know, one, uh, Philosopher in particular that I've been talking to has just uh, made me realize how, in every issue, there's this idea that human impact on nature is immoral and inevitably self-destructive. Those two things—it's wrong, and it's inevitably going to come back to bite us. And if you just look at CO2, there's just this idea that oh, it's got to be—it's got to be bad. And yet, the two basic things you would expect from it. Or one, it's going to lead to significant greening, and that's happened, and that's going to be good for us in tons of ways, most notably agriculture, but it's also just going to be provide more raw material for all the rest of life on Earth. It. So it's going to be a more lush world. You, you would think that, and then you would think more warming, and particularly as Patrick Moore pointed out, more warming toward the poles you would think, yeah, that's going to make a more lush world, too. You know, different, much, many more organisms flourish in warmer conditions than colder conditions, to put it mildly. So you'd expect a more lush world. And yet all we can think about, because humans did it, is that it must be bad. It has to be bad because we know it's bad for humans to impact things. And, and Patrick referred to this as the original sin. It is really a, a secular original sin where just to be human mean you know for a human being to impact the rest of nature that is unnatural and bad and yet anything else in nature has an impact and that's natural and therefore good and I've called this and it's not a joke but it's kind of an amusing term to some human racism because it's a bias against the entire human race and one thing I try to do in the new version of my book, and I try to do even more in my thinking and talking about these issues these days, is to root out human racism. So it doesn't mean that we CO2, we assume it's all good, or we're not open to evidence that there are negatives, but we certainly shouldn't assume that it must be bad or it must be catastrophic, particularly, again, because the baseline uh, impacts are, makes things greener and makes things warmer. And particularly warmer and cold places and actually I believe also at night and in winters it's concentrated if we know it makes it warmer when it's way too cold for humans makes the earth a more lush habitable place how can we possibly not factor that in and then of course the biggest factor that I always talk about is human empowerment it's that because fossil fuels for the vast vast majority of people and And purposes are by far the lowest cost way of getting energy, which means getting the ability to use machines. Like that enables us to be far more productive and and prosperous. So it's just, it really seems like there's a good case that this byproduct of our lowest cost form of energy is net beneficial. And certainly I've never heard anyone persuasively argue that it's net harmful. It could be. I can imagine that but I don't think the evidence is there. And I think the reason everyone just thinks it's so obvious that it's bad is they have this anti-impact bias. They think human impact on nature is immoral and that it's inevitably self-destructive regardless of the fact. And so what we need is we need the premise that the definition of good, the standard of good is human flourishing. So things that advance human flourishing, those things are good. And that human impact It's not necessarily good, but it's fundamentally necessary because we don't live on a perfect planet. We live on an imperfect planet where there's lots of room for improvement if you care about human flourishing. Our ancestors lived on a natural planet with their natural abilities and life was extremely hard and most of them didn't survive. And today we can survive and flourish at a much, much higher level because we have taken this imperfect planet and transformed it into a far better place to live. And we can do better in many dimensions, whether it's uh, you know, producing more food, healthier food, enjoying nature more, freeing up more leisure time, all kinds of different things, but it all comes down to our focus is on human flourishing and we recognize that the planet is imperfect and needs a lot of improvement to advance human flourishing. So. It's great to talk to Patrick Moore, whom I think is philosophically very aligned. I don't know that we agree on everything, uh, but is just very interested in the world and ecology, but without this anti-human slash anti-impact bias. And the other thing that I would take away from what he said, which I hadn't thought of with respect to him, but it totally makes sense, is he mentioned that he was interested in how things work in how the world, and, and it's interesting he has that in ecology where he's really genuinely interested in how you know, different parts of nature interact. And then within the human world he's really interested in things such as how do we get food? How do we get clothing? How do we get shelter? Where does the material for a bicycle come from? Where does the material for a bicycle come from? And it's so sad how little interest there is today in the, in the way the world works. There's a lot of interest, in pretending to be scientific and saying, I'm scientific, I listen to the scientists, but there's so little interest in how things actually work. And that's so much of what's needed, interest in how things work, and then a value placed on human life, on human flourishing, on human beings living to their most potential. Because if you have that, if you really care about human life, and you're really interested in how the world works, then you will get to Very to conclusions that lead to human life getting better. I think that's what Patrick Moore has done. That's what I aspire to do, and I hope that you uh, watching or listening to this aspire to that as well. So hope you enjoyed that. Uh, Patrick said he'd come on more frequently. I definitely want to take advantage of that. Uh, There's a lot I can learn from him, a lot we all can learn from him, so definitely have him on fairly regularly. I think maybe he'll just become the first regular guest on the show. Uh, just some housekeeping. As always, if you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, you can email me at alex at alexepstein.com. Also, Patrick gave you some resources. You can follow him on Twitter if you just search Patrick Moore or I believe his handle is at Ecosense Now. He has over hundred thousand followers and which is very heartening, but I wish he had a million followers because definitely more people need to hear his message and I really like his Twitter. He's just always interesting on, uh, on every topic and I, I can't ever really predict what he's going to say because he just has a lot of, he's a good thinker and he has a lot of domain specific knowledge that I don't have, so it's, it's always a nice surprise to see his, uh, his take on things. Um, besides that to if you're not on my newsletter, highly recommend getting it. You can go to industrialprogress.com and sign up for the newsletter. And if you want to support our work at the Center for Industrial Progress, particularly uh, support our research and development efforts that help make projects like the Moral Case for Fossil Fuels 2.0 possible, or help our marketing efforts, which help do things like promote uh, videos more widely, you can contribute at industrialprogress.com accelerate. That's industrialprogress.com accelerate. All right, that is it for this week. Next week, we are scheduled to have Bjorn Lomborg, author of False Alarm. And if you haven't gotten your copy of False Alarm, make sure to get that on Amazon. Remember also Patrick Moore's book is Confessions of a Green Peace Dropout. Get that on Amazon as well. And join me again next week. All right, I'll be back then. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour.
0: Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.